Well, here at Sojourn, it is our conviction that the path to transformation and change comes through hearing and receiving God's word. So we open it up every week as the people of God to be equipped by it and transformed by it to see the greatness and the glory of God in it. Mark chapter 6 is where we are this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, then Mark, and we're six chapters in. And we'll start reading Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Hear God's word. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, had been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it was not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for all his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. Mark includes in his gospel two passion narratives. We know one is coming, and that's the passion narrative of Jesus himself, The other one is the passage that we just read, the passion narrative of John. And Mark, in a way that I think, and in a fashion I think John the Baptist would actually really approve of, tells John's story, tells his passion, almost with John in the background. It's told from a different perspective. John's just kind of there. And I think John would love that. He loved to be able to point to another who was greater than him. He loved to be the one who said, well, I need to become lesser so that he and his ministry and his life would become greater so the people would look to him. So I think even in a way, the way that Mark writes, he, he honors John and what he was all about in his life and ministry. And he writes this passion narrative of John and he places this narrative in an interesting place. You remember chapter 6, Jesus was rejected in his hometown at Nazareth and he didn't pull back and retreat, but he sent his disciples out. He sends them out and they're healing, they're casting out Demons, they're going and teaching. Right after that, John the Baptist. And as Jesus and his disciples proclaim the message of the kingdom, and as they heal and as they cast out, news spreads about this ministry and about what's going on. News that reaches the highest ears in the land. Verse 14, King Herod hears of it. Herod is the ruler of Galilee. He is the one who's in charge of of the place where where Jesus was doing his ministry primarily, especially what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. 
Now, there are several Herods, and so it's important to kind of get our Herod family tree in order. Herod's father was Herod the Great. You likely have read of him over the Christmas season. Herod the Great was the one in Matthew chapter 2, wanted to kill Jesus and orders the death of all males under two years of age in the region so that he could take out Jesus. This Herod, Herod the Great, he has a son, one of those sons, he has many sons, many wives, is Herod Antipas, which is the Herod that we read in this story. Herod the Great's grandson is one that we read of in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa. In Acts chapter 12, you remember that he's, he's talking and they're saying like, wow, this is the voice of God. And he doesn't give credit to God and he's killed on the spot. So the Lord's like, we look at the Herod family tree and we see all sorts of good things. Right, this, is, this is a great family to be a part of. This Herod, Herod Antipas, ruled over Galilee and Perea during much of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus will actually meet him later on. And so the, the question that confronts Herod Antipas and all that are hearing about Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his disciples is, who is this man? Verse 14, they're hearing of him, and some are saying of him, this is John the Baptist who's been raised. That's why all these miraculous powers are at work. Others said he's Elijah. Elijah was known for great work, prophet of old. Maybe it's him. We know that some of the whispers have gone out that an Elijah-like figure was to come, so maybe that's who Jesus is. Others says he is Elijah. And others saying he's just a prophet like one of the prophets of old. There's all sorts of thoughts about who this is. It's interesting that no one seems to be able to put their finger on the identity of Jesus. Except for demons. They're really clear. They know who he is. They shout it out every time they come in confrontation with him, almost in the book of Mark. But everyone else is questioning, who is this man, and how does he do what he does? The scribes did this. The Pharisees did this. In chapter 2, verse 7, you remember that Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed? And they're saying, first Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they're saying, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, who is this man that he could say these kind of things? In chapter 3, verse 22, they come up with a solution to who this Jesus is. Oh, we know what he's doing this by. We know how he's, he's, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Maybe he's this prince of demons himself. It wasn't just the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus' own family didn't know what to do with him. In chapter 3, the same chapter, they think that he's out of his mind. And they don't know what to think of him, and they well, maybe he's crazy. Jesus' disciples, the men who have been following him and seeing up close in person, his nature, his work, they see him calm a storm and they say the same thing. What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the seas obey this man. In the Decapolis, where Jesus encounters a man who's possessed by a legion of demons, chapter 5, the men come, verse 15, and they see Jesus and they see the demon-possessed man who had had the legion sitting there and he's clothed in his right mind and, and what do they do? Rejoice? No, they're afraid. Verse 17, it says, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They don't know what to make of Jesus either, and they think that it's probably better if they put a little distance between themselves and him. In chapter 6, Jesus' own hometown, the people that knew him, they say, how does he do these things? Verse 2, where did these man, this man get these things? What wisdom was given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So no one knows how, what to think of Jesus. His identity is, is unknown, except to the demons. They're really clear on it. Everyone else is just confused. I, I don't know what kind of man this is. Who is this man that he can do these things? Well, the rulers 
And the ruling class, perhaps some of the people that had conspired with the Pharisees in chapter 3, word has reached their ears about the work of Jesus. And they're going to have to figure out what to think about him as well. You see, the magnitude of the life and ministry of Jesus compels all that know about it to reckon with him, to reckon with his identity, to come up with a solution for what we're hearing. How are we going to reckon with what he's doing and who he is? Who are we going to say this man is? You see, think of what could be known about Jesus up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. He teaches with authority. Not like the other scribes and Pharisees, he teaches almost as as the authority. Unclean spirits encounter him and they obey every single word that he tells them to do. He heals diseases everywhere he goes. He pushes back all the forces and kingdom of darkness everywhere he goes. And that's not something that can be ignored. Not something that can be pushed to the side. Jesus' family, the Pharisees, the scribes, Herod's own court are forced into thinking about who is this man? Who is this person that can do these things? You see, the magnitude of Jesus' life and ministry should compel the same in us today. Even if we've only heard of these first five, six chapters from the Gospel of Mark of Jesus' life and ministry, it should compel us to think, who is this person? And how does he do what he does? He should not be ignored. See, Mark's witness up to this point has already presented all of us with, with what we read about a couple times weeks ago, a trilemma. Jesus is either a lunatic, like he's delusional, he, he, he's crazy. He's a liar. He knows he's not doing these things rightly, and he knows he's not who he says he is, but he's just lying to us. He could be that. Or he's Lord. Or he really is the Son of God. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus, up to chapter 6, has already done what no other man can do, compelling us to reckon with his identity. Who is this man? What's more is that we claim more. Mark will claim more too, but we for sure claim more. We don't just say that he cast out demons, he heals, but that he died. And that he didn't stay dead, that he actually got up after death, after being in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And we would say that none should ignore this. Everyone should consider, if this is true, that Jesus has really done these things, and if he really died and was really raised, then everyone needs to reckon with him. Who he is, why he came, and how he does the things that he does. If they are true, then Jesus really is Lord, Son of God. And that presents every single one of us who know these things to be true with a crisis. A crisis of what to do with this. Because if Jesus is Lord and the Son of God, then what should my response be? What do I do with my life in light of that? If Jesus truly is Lord, if he truly is the Son of God, then I owe him my life that I owe him everything. And he's worthy of my worship, my praise, all of my life, I owe it to him. Jesus knows this. He knows that if we reckon with him rightly, it will cost us our life. This is why he says that those who will consider him and are compelled to consider him and see him as Lord are going to lose their life. And he says all those who lose their life for his sake will actually save it. But those who are presented with the crisis of who Jesus is and how he does the things he does are presented with the same crisis. And in that crisis, if they want to save their life, 
If they want to say, I know this maybe is who he says he is, but maybe I'll go with the other options. Maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he's a liar so that I can remain Lord of my life. If you want to do that, Jesus says you'll lose your life, ultimately. But the life and ministry of Jesus compel response. They did in Jesus' day. They still do today. Everyone is going to come up with an answer that knows anything about Jesus. The magnitude of his life and what we're claiming of him, that he did all these things and that he went to the grave and then he rose again, are too big to ignore if you know it. It compel us to respond. Herod has an answer too. He comes up with an answer for who he thinks Jesus is. He hears all these rumors and he has an answer and we read it in verse 16. He says, this is John whom I beheaded has been raised. Herod's explanation of Jesus and his work and his life and his ministry is actually probably higher than many. Maybe higher than Jesus' own family. Herod at least says, well, maybe there's a resurrection that's happened here. That's a pretty big claim. Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. Herod at least says, well, I think John has been raised. It's a pretty high opinion. But surely, if John had known that, that, that they're saying of Jesus that he's John come back, John would have been so disappointed. What did John loved to point to another? He loved to speak of the kingdom of God so that he could speak of the king. And when the king came, you remember what he said of Jesus. He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His disciples started following him. He says, yes, I'm going to go down. He needs to increase. I want you to follow him. Surely he would have been disappointed in this answer, this rumor But the answer shows that that Herod has an uneasy conscience. That he's not dealing with everything in his world right. He has a few skeletons in his closet that he doesn't know how to deal with. And so what Mark does is he uses Herod's explanation of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, as an occasion to pick up John's story that we left in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we read a very brief thing, as Mark often does in his gospel. We get a little brief snippet of John's ministry. And in verse 14, he's arrested, and that's it, till chapter 6. Then we pick up in verse 17. Here's what happened to John. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. There are several layers to this wickedness that's going on here. Herod, to take his brother's wife, had to renounce his first wife and send her away. So he has this renouncement of his former marriage, and so does she. Not only then does he, he moves on to take his brother's wife. His father, Herod the Great, would have had several children. And out of this, here's one of his brothers who has this wife that he wants. And likely that this wife, Herodias, is actually probably, there's probably an incestuous tie here, is probably his niece. Uh, the family tree kind of points out that like, his brother Philip, married someone he probably shouldn't have, and then Herod wants her too, and he takes her. So we have all sorts of layers to this wickedness. Herod and Herodias' relationship was adulterous and prohibited by Scripture, clear in the Mosaic Law. So John the Baptist, in very prophetic fashion, in very much the, the character and nature of Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, he speaks very plainly and openly into this sinful situation. We don't know if he does this in person. We don't know if he just does it when he is told what's going on and he just says out loud. We don't know. 
But we do know his message. For John had been saying, verse 18 to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John speaks courageously, boldly, with the truth, the truth of God's law. And he speaks it right into the middle of this situation, calling out immorality. And I think it's interesting that it says that he calls it unlawful. The law of Moses was written long ago. He doesn't say, you know what, we're in modern day now. And so we know better. It said it back then, but let's not, let's not apply that morality now. No, he says this is unlawful. Immoral is what he's saying. Sin against the Lord is what he's saying. And his message was the same message that he'd been giving ever since his start of his ministry. People would come out to him and he'd say, repent. Here's the message here. This isn't lawful. Turn from it to a living God. And John is not afraid to confront sin in Herod's life with the truth. He's selfless. This is risky. To speak to power like this, it's a risky venture. He's selfless. He's courageous. He's truthful. Those are the kind of people to have in life confronting you. The selfless people who love you enough to say, I'll speak this even if it's going to hurt me. The courageous people that are willing to go forward in the middle of a risky situation. The people that are going to bring, when they get there, truth. Those are the kind of people to have in your life. Those are the kind of people to be. And although we heard last week that the message of repentance is a message of invitation into the kingdom of God, it's also an offensive message because it is saying to come into this kingdom, to to receive this invitation, you're going to have to turn from your kingdom. Your kingdom is lesser. Your kingdom is a rival that won't be tolerated. It's an offensive message. It's an offensive message to all who hear it. And in almost every royal court that you can find, you know what you're going to have in there? Flattering speech, smooth language, not the message of repentance, not often. And the message of repentance that John has for Herod and his court doesn't flatter. I think we see that so clearly in Herodias' response, her enraged reaction. Verse 19 says, she had a grudge against him. She wanted to put him to death. She hates him. She wants to kill him, but she couldn't because Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. So Herod, he can't allow John to continue saying the things he's saying and be free, because he's married to Herodias. And this man is causing insurrection, possibly, by going around and saying that what you're doing is sinful. So he can't let him be free. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to kill him. He just can't bring himself to it. There's something about John and what he's saying. He's he's divided with what to do with John. His wife's not. She's really clear. Holds a grudge against him. She wants him dead. That is her mission. Put him to death. So what holds him back? What makes him tell his wife no? The end of verse 20. He fears John. He knows that he's righteous and holy and he keeps him safe. He even hears him. He's perplexed by him, but he hears him gladly. There's something about his message that conflicts Herod, and he doesn't know what to do. John has a clear message, a message that what you're doing is wrong and sinful. You need to turn from it. It's clear. And yet, he hears it gladly. It's attractive. It challenges him, and yet somehow it's connecting with him. It's hitting him in the right place. It's a clear call to repentance and at the same time it's compelling. It's true, perplexing. He even hears it gladly. There's something really good about what he's saying. Now I think it's safe to say that John 
was probably careful with his words, that he, he kept a close guard on his lips. I think it's like we could say that John was embodying what Paul calls for in Colossians chapter 4. When he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And here's John, walking with wisdom toward outsiders, keeping his speech gracious, seasoned with salt. And we don't know all what he said and didn't say. We only have this one message. So he's saying, hey, your marriage is unlawful, but we do know this, that Herod hears him gladly. So we have both a challenging message, and yet he's heard gladly. It seems as if John is an example of how to be a faithful witness in a tense, hostile, volatile, dangerous situation. He does such a faithful job that the man that he calls out hears him gladly and thinks him righteous. It's very much in the spirit of what Peter tells to do. First Peter chapter 2 says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they see your deeds, they, they glorify God. We could say this, keep your speech full of love and truth, that it might compel even those it confronts. John shows us some great balance here, we think. He doesn't avoid the issues, we know that for sure, but he does it in a way, at least in some ways, that is winsome, where he's gladly heard. At least he's winsome enough, attractive enough, compelling enough to, to be kept alive. If he's only one note, if he's only this is sinful turn and nothing else, then it's likely that he would have met death a lot quicker. Christians need to be the people who can witness in their culture, who can witness even to maybe those in power, who can be clear and also compelling, who can confront and also connect, have a similar balance. Tim Keller talks about this, and he uses a definition of demolition. He talks about demolition as how we need to speak to the culture. So he, he talks about removing a giant boulder. And how do you remove a, a massive boulder? If it's in the road, what do you do with this boulder? Well, what you got to do is you got to drill a hole right through the center of this massive boulder. And then you put the demolition, you put the TNT, whatever you got, you put it down into the middle. Put it in there and then you detonate. Drill the shaft, detonate. If you drill, but you don't blast, the boulder stays. If you don't drill, and then you blast, you just put the explosive on the outside, you got a problem. You might cause some damage, but the boulder will remain. And so we have two things. Drilling with no blasting and blasting with no drilling are all going to lead to failure. Here's what John does. He drills and he blasts. He calls sin, sin. He says, this isn't lawful for you to do this. And yet he was considered holy, and he was heard gladly. And that's the way we should be too. Tim Keller says this. He says, if we simply blast away, railing against the evils of the culture, we are unlikely to receive a hearing among those we seek to reach. If John blasts, he probably dies quickly. That's all he does. Nothing we say to them will gain traction, and we will be written off and dismissed. We may feel virtuous for being bold, but we will have failed to honor the gospel by putting in its most compelling form. Now, on the other hand, if we simply drill, affirming and reflecting the culture and saying things that people find acceptable, we will rarely see anyone converted. We may feel virtuous for being sensitive and open-minded, but we will have failed to honor the gospel by letting it speak pointedly and prophetically. That sounds a lot like Colossians chapter 4. Let your grace be 
wise, let your life and your speech be wise toward outsiders. Always seasoned with salt, full of grace. All of our conduct, including our speech, is supposed to commend the gospel. We want to blast in a way that commends the gospel and drill in a way that commends the gospel. We want to do both. We don't lack confrontation, but we also don't lack something that's compelling there, that's attractive there, that's winsome there. We want to do both so that we can commend the gospel. That's what we're aiming to do. We want to gain a hearing. None of this obviously guarantees results. John's story shows us that. He preaches compellingly in a confrontational way to Herod, and Herod doesn't turn that we know of. But faith comes how? By hearing. So make as many opportunities for that hearing as possible by both drilling and blasting. And so what John does is he works. He drills and he blasts. And Herod hears him. Herodias, on the other hand, doesn't want to have anything to do with him. She's continually plotting his demise. Verse 21, she finds an opportunity. An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, he gave a banquet for the nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' wife, or when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. You can imagine the scene. All the top brass in Galilee are there. The top officials, all the important people, the powerful people are there. They're having a party. You can imagine that the feasting, the celebration, the drinking that's all going on in this party. I mean, this is the worldly party to the max. And it may be a party in word, but as we see through this, we see a horrific scene. We have lustful men Drunk, not drunk. Within their midst, at least one known adulterer that has no problem whatsoever of taking another man's wife, ogling at a young girl who's dancing. That's a horrific scene. And this young girl who dances pleases them and inflames in them their pride and their lust. So much so that they, Herod makes a rash vow. You add on to the layer of that, that Herodias is the one who sent this, her own daughter into this situation. Into this horrific scene. So that she can sinfully take advantage of the situation to meet her end. This is wickedness at every level. Here's Herodias willing to scheme and use her own daughter to get what she wants. Here's Herod full of lust and pride having a party, pleased by a young girl who dances in front of him and vows rashly to give her up to half his kingdom. What we see from Herod and Herodias is their slavery to sin. They are slaves to sin. They have refused to listen to the message of the kingdom of God to turn from their sin and have life with God under his good reign and his good rule. And this is where it leads them. They remain driven by their sin. And it leads to not only some foolish actions, but very deadly actions. Verse 24, Herodias' daughter comes out and says, what should I ask? And she says, the head of John the Baptist, she's ready. To pounce, to take advantage, she was ready. We want John dead. And so she came in immediately and with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once. Notice, immediately, haste, at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, he's exceedingly sorrowful. 
But because of his oath and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. It's probably here that, that Herod may have had at least a, a small realization of how foolish he's been. Of how foolish his vow was to Herodias' daughter. Now maybe he was speaking hyperbolically like, oh, I'll give you half my kingdom. And he didn't really mean it, but he at least meant something and she knew it. Name a price. It can be pretty high. And she does. And it's high. And he's foolish. And here's where he finds himself. He's trapped. You can either lose face with all the best, the top, the brightest, the most powerful in Galilee, something as a king you don't want to do. Or you can kill John, something he's already said he doesn't want to do. He fears John. He hears him gladly. He doesn't want to do that, so he's trapped. And this is where sin leads. It will entrap. It will cost more than anyone to pay. It will do this. We're fools to think that our sin wouldn't lead us into quite such a bad situation as this. Sin is deceitful. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 to put off the old self full of deceitful desires. We can't trust every desire that comes to us. They're full of deceit. They'll lie to us. I want this man's wife. It'll be okay. I'll just get rid of this one and then you do all these things and pretty soon you're in a pretty bad situation. There are some old deceitful desires They will lie to us, like lust, immorality. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 13, it tells us to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? So that we wouldn't be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. Because when we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, it always is going to lead to some sort of great cost. There are going to be consequences and repercussions to this. One pastor says this. The deceitfulness of sin is this. Up front, it sparkles with promise. But once we commit... When it's too late to back out, it entangles us in repercussions we did not foresee and consequences we cannot evade. The girl dances, and it pleases them. There's a real pleasure in sin, at least for a while. It sparkled in front of them, and then it led to their entanglement, their entrapment to sin. Herod has to face the repercussions, the consequences of his sin-hardened heart, his sin-hardened actions. He's trapped. It's a lose-lose for him. I can lose face, or I can lose a man that I want to hear. The sin in our lives could lead us down a similar path. If we're not putting it off the way Paul tells us to in Ephesians, if we're not receiving the exhortation from one another against our sin that Hebrews exhorts us to, then maybe our hearts will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and maybe we will go down a similar path. A little slip here, no big deal. A compromise over here, ah, that doesn't seem like a big deal. It won't lead to something so bad. And pretty soon we could end up in a serious danger, an entanglement with consequences that we can't evade, that we want to get out of, but we can't get away from. Repercussions that are way higher in cost than we ever could have imagined. That's what sin does. That's why Paul tells us over and over again. That's why the scripture tells us to be careful. Watch out for its deceitfulness. That's why wisdom walks and runs away from sin, not to it. It doesn't go close. Herod is trapped in a situation that he doesn't want, and that's where sin leads. And look what happens, verse 29. 27, immediately the king, he sent an executioner. He chooses to kill John. I'll save my own pride. I'll save face before these. Let's just get rid of John. He sends an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
And he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's a pretty fun scene. Great story to add in all these great Jesus Bible stories. Here's the story of Jesus. Oh yeah, don't forget about John who got his head chopped off and put on a platter. It's a chilling conclusion. I read it to my family last night and they're like, yeah, I don't want to read that again. So Mark has written this fast-paced gospel, action-packed gospel, full of the kingdom of God's power and authority being expressed everywhere he goes. Demons flee. Diseases healed. People follow Jesus. He says, follow me, and they just drop stuff and they follow after him. We see the, the kingdom's authority everywhere we go. It's the kind of ministry and the kind of thing you want to jump on board with. But you've got to ask the question, where's the kingdom authority in John's cold, swift beheading at the hands of sinful men? Where's the kingdom authority now? Where was it in John's cell when he was just sitting there waiting and all of a sudden the man comes in and it's over? I think Mark will be clear throughout his gospel, but is trying to push us this direction now. He previews it here that the power and authority of the kingdom can and will be demonstrated not just through casting out demons and healing of diseases, teaching authoritatively, but also through suffering, also through death. The kingdom's power and authority will not just be expressed in the things that we see it expressed in, like demons fleeing and diseases being healed, but also in suffering, death. It's expressed in both places, and I think the context helps us here. It's important that we think about, why did Mark include this story? And, and more than that, why did he include it here? You ever thought about that? Why did Mark put this story here? Does he just want to update us on life of John and just tell us that, that John died? Surely he wants to do that, but I think he wants to do more. If you look in chapter 6, verse 13, the disciples have been sent out, and here's what they're doing. They're casting out many demons. They're anointing with oil many who are sick, and they're healing them. Look in verse 30. They return, and they tell Jesus all that they had done and taught. Sounds like it's a long story. They've done a lot. They've seen a lot. They've done a lot with their power and authority that they received from Jesus. And so what we do here is we see, right? We've been talking in the Gospel of Mark about these sandwiches, how Mark will he'll bracket certain stories that have some likenesses. And here he gives us another sandwich. He serves it up to us. The disciples, they were sent out with authority, and they report back, to Jesus. And in between there, we have John. Here we have these disciples, they're out, they have all sorts of good things going on. It's the kind of ministry all of us would want to sign up for. I'll cast out demons. I would love to heal. If that's my ministry, like, sign me up now, I'll put my name down and commit to that right now. Teaching even, with authority, they're going out. Probably had some crowds around them, cities are looking to them and hearing from them gladly. And right in the middle of all of that momentum where darkness is being pushed back over and over and over again is John's head. I think Mark aims to awaken all of Jesus' disciples to the reality of following Jesus. 
that all of Jesus' disciples are sent out. But not all of them receive a ministry where they're going to be casting out demons, healing diseases, teaching authoritatively. Some of them are going to receive a ministry where they're just saying to repent and they're doing it in a compelling way and they still lose their head. It may cost. Right in the middle of all these successes, we have John. Who loses. He's even in the background. We don't even see him being the hero of the story. All he is is sitting there. He said a message and then he's beheaded. Following Jesus won't always be casting out a legion of demons. It won't always be healing of diseases. It won't always be teaching to the multitudes. It may be suffering in a quick death. John's arrest and his death shows that faithfulness to the message of the kingdom of God might just cost our life. Right in the middle of Jesus' sending and hearing the report, life is cost in the ministry of the kingdom of God. I think Mark also includes John's passion narrative as a preview to another passion narrative. We know John's, or Jesus' passion narrative is forthcoming, and I think John would love how Mark does this as almost a preview, because he loves to be the, I'm not the groom, I'm just pointing to him. I am so good with being in the background, in the shadows, and just pointing us to him. If I'm a preview to that passion, I think John would be thrilled. And I think that's what Mark does here. John proclaims the message of the kingdom of God. Everybody comes to him and he says, well, you need to repent. That's the message of the kingdom. And that was his message. Then he's taken into custody. Then he meets Herod. Then he dies. And all of that in a way that points to the life of and ministry, and even the death of Jesus. Notice verse 29, an important detail that I hope we don't miss. When his disciples, John's disciples, heard of what had happened, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. You you should be making connections in your mind immediately, like, oh, they come and they laid his body in a tomb. Where I heard this before. Jesus, too, preaches the message of the kingdom that people need to repent. He preaches it even to powerful people. And his body is killed. He is crucified. He, too, is laid in a tomb. And he, too, has some disciples come, take his body, put it in a tomb. John's passion narrative is a preview of this greater passion. And this little detail of his disciples coming and getting his body and laying in a tomb is an important detail to be reminded of even when we're faithful in proclaiming the kingdom of God and meet our death, that ultimately it won't end in death. Now we don't know why John's disciples come and get his body without a head. Perhaps they're just doing the honorable thing. that All people should have an honorable burial, so they're just going to come get his body and they're going to put it in a tomb. Perhaps it was more. Perhaps they come and get his body by faith knowing that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we know that the Lamb of God is going to restore back the kingdom of God rightly and his people too. Perhaps they do it in faith of the one who is to come. But either way, this preview passion points to Jesus' passion, where kingdom is power is shown even in death. Jesus is killed and he's put in a tomb just like John, but unlike John, Jesus raises from that tomb. Suffering and death lead to seeming defeat. But it was through suffering and death that Jesus wins ultimate victory. And a victory that's not just for himself, but all those who would have their faith in him. He he raises in a way that doesn't just justify his own life and ministry, but in a way that would 
justify, make right in God's sight all those who had put their faith in him. That he too might raise them up one day. And so it's a beautiful detail for us today to know that John's disciples took this body and they laid it in a tomb probably without a head. Because we know the one who left the tomb alive. And his resurrection becomes the preview of all the resurrections of those who have faith in him. So as Jesus raises from the tomb, physically, made whole, so too were all those who follow in him. And because we know the one who left the tomb alive, we can be sure that John's death wasn't the end. Here's the man who pointed to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world consistently. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, John's body that his disciples buried is going to leave a hole in the ground one day and be restored to his head. John's headless body is doing, does what his life and ministry did, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Following Jesus might cost our head. But if we're following Jesus by faith, it will not end in death. Jesus says, even though they die, they will live. John died, and even though John died, he will live. For those of you who are followers of Jesus who've placed your faith in Jesus, we have a sacred family meal where we are reminded that Jesus died in payment for sin that he raised so that we too might be raised one day. We are reminded that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that we might be forgiven. Why? So that we might have eternal life with God, that we might have, we be reconciled to God. So if you're a believer, you can come and take this meal in hope and in faith that the one who rose from the tomb is going to come back and your body will leave a hole in the ground as well as he takes you with him. If you're not a believer, this meal is not for you. We would plead with you to, instead of taking this meal, to repent and believe in Jesus. The only path to eternal life, the only path to life with God, the life that you are made to have is through repentance and faith in Jesus. So don't take this meal, repent and believe. If you don't know what that looks like, find one of us, find a believer, ask him, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How can I repent and put my faith in him? And we'd love to share more, but don't take this meal. This meal is for believers. Believers, come in hope. Jesus raised, you'll be raised too. You're united with him by your faith. This is a meal of hope proclaiming his resurrection until he comes again. Would you bow in prayer with me? Jesus, some of your people in the world today might lose their heads because of their proclamation that you are God and that they need to turn from their sin and put their faith in you or be judged by you. And those people are our brothers and our sisters. And the Holy Spirit dwells within them just like he dwells within us, and we want to lift them up to you today.
that those who are truly, seriously, dangerously being persecuted for their faith will remain strong. Pray that their faith in you will not waver and that they will continue to tell the truth to those who are enemies of the cross. Pray that they will be able to love those who are persecuting them and that their persecution and uh, even if it's if it ends in murder, that that would bring shame on their persecutors because they see how well they die. That's been the story again and again in the history of your church, that the death of the martyrs brings you glory and actually makes your gospel attractive and compelling God. So will you help our brothers and sisters who suffer Help them to not back down uh, and help them to suffer well and love well and speak your truth to your glory today. And God, you know, the rest of us, most of us in this room, our persecution is low grade. And yet some of us are, we might be terrified at the thought of telling someone that they are caught in a life of sin, which ends in destruction. We don't want anyone to get mad at us. We don't want anyone to think we're stupid because we're Christians and we believe that the Bible is true. Uh, God, will you take away our fear and actually our love for ourselves? Because when we do that, we are not loving the person that we fail to speak to. We're loving ourselves because we just want to look good and don't want any trouble. God, for those of us who are afraid to be bold, I pray that you would take that away and that you would replace it with love for people who don't know you and love for you, that we would be so excited and so thankful for what you've done for us that we can't shut up about it. It just comes out of our mouths because you are always on our hearts. Make us those kinds of Christians, Lord. And Father, some of us are maybe a little too bold and too harsh and don't slow down and really genuinely love people, but are proud of our boldness and how strong we can defend the truth. And, and sometimes we can love the truth and not love people. And that's not what you have for us either, God. So will you soften us? And if we have any kind of pride in our Christian faith, uh, remove it because that contradicts your gospel because we're about to remember that you are the one who bled. You are the one who gave your body, not us. We did not save ourselves. And if it were not for you intervening in our lives and opening up our eyes to the beauty of your gospel, we would still be lost and enslaved by our sin and bound for hell, God. Humble us. Give us compassion for those who don't know you. We're not better than they are. We've just been given grace. God, as we take this meal, we adore you. We know that we're sinful We know we've put so many things before you. And 
we are sorry and we are thankful that you love us anyway and that your forgiveness is not based on how hard we repent or how sorry we are, but our repentance is a gift from you, God. So will you make us more sensitive to our sin as we take this supper today? I pray that we would be broken over all the ways that we've rebelled against you and then moving quickly into thanksgiving. You are a good God. You are our rescuer. You're our redeemer. And the promise that we have, the reason we don't have to be afraid of death or beheading is because you have destroyed death. The worst thing that can happen to us won't happen because it's already happened to you, Jesus. We delight in that. May we praise your name as we take this supper today. In your name I pray. Amen.